far. I think uh, with Prime Minister Modi's thrust towards yoga and the kind of changes we've seen in the last couple of years, it's a really, really exciting time as far as uh, Indian soft power is concerned. Personally, I remember my encounter with soft power was th that with uh, Korean soft power, which was K-pop. And I saw just the very uh, organized way in which the South Koreans were really talking about their culture and what made them unique and different and what they brought to the world and uh, really outpaced Japan in that endeavor. So I've, I've always been very interested in this topic. I'm very grateful uh, to our moderator, uh, Mr. Alok Dimri, who is a diplomat by profession with an expertise in particular on China and speaks of Mandarin, which is always lovely uh, to have someone bilingual, multilingual, I think, right? No? <laughs> multilingual. Um, also, uh, Shantanu and Nikhil, uh, famed fashion designers uh, who have uh, spoken the language of fashion for really uh, the last uh, 15 odd years, if not longer, and uh, really expanded the footprint of Indian fashion in the country and abroad as well. Uh, they do a lot of work with textiles, with um, uh, silhouettes, cuts, um, do a lot of work with men's fashion in particular. That's also one of their core areas and uh, really are speaking the language of fashion to Indian fashion to the world. Dilip Cherian needs no introduction. Uh, Dilip is, of course, a regular on TV and uh, is well known for his um, reputation as an image guru, brand consultant, and really has advised everyone from celebrities to states to countries to politicians and on how to project themselves and really it would be wonderful to get his perspective on uh, India and how does India position herself in the coming year and finally Hari Varlamani he is a patron of Indic arts culture he has a true passion for Indic civilization uh, he personally I think of him as the as the books fairy godmother because he's very kind to uh, start a book club and send a, sends out wonderful, wonderful books for all of us to read and educate ourselves and keep us updated because so much of Indic civilization and culture has been sidelined. And uh, that's amazing. And I'm saving the last person for now who had to remind me from the corner, Manish Behati. Where's the chair? <laughs> Volunteers, it's there. Okay, here it is. Manish Behethi is a cuisine curator. He has uh, over 15 years of experience in uh, luxury hospitality. He now runs a Food for Thought Fest, which is a conversation about food. What he's done is that he's brought Sark nations and their cuisine together and uh, really exports food and our cuisine to the world. And he brings a unique, tasty perspective to this panel. So thank you so much, all of you, for being Let's start the conversation. Uh, thank you, Adweda, for the wonderful introduction. And friends, uh, <coughs> thanks for being here, and also for the sound and microphone, which is back, so I'm delighted. And to uh, carry this conversation forward, Adweda just has given a wonderful introduction to an esteemed panel here. And uh, as we understand that uh, this evening, we are going to discuss uh, the soft power. And uh, the notion of soft power, and the aim is the unleashing part of it in the national context that where we are and how we are going to do it. And we have an esteemed panel. We have from civilizational to cuisine to fashion to the world of image and communication experts with us. 
And briefly to set the tone uh, of this conversation this evening, uh, let me say that my own familiarity with this concept was about 15 years ago when uh, this, this word started trickling into the consciousness of the practitioners of the craft that uh, what is soft power? And uh, this was also in the context of uh, increasing interface among the nations and cultures and people that happened in the 90s and the first decade of this century. And the notion that uh, how you have beyond the coercive means something else at your disposal that could be deployed to national persuasions, the non-coercive means to persuade and have a behavioral impact on a global community and society. Now, keeping that in mind, I would also give you a brief uh, snapshot of my own uh, sense of amazement when, once I was in China in 2014, and that's the time when the Australian Prime Minister had paid a state visit to India, and they had done some cooperation with the India on nuclear cooperation, and I recall somebody at the media conference asked him that, uh, how did you do it? And uh, are you sure about the safety? And the gentleman responded by saying that, who can ever believe that India would ever attack another country or harm some other nation? Now, to me, that moment was that soft power syndrome, that you achieved it without an effort, what it takes lobbying and people and the firms to do it. Now, carrying this conversation and that, that note forward, uh, let me start with our esteemed panelists here. We already have the introduction. We have the communication and image expert, Dilip Cherian. And let me start with Dilip, who is on my left. Uh, Dilip, uh, where do you see in today's context where the world is? What are our interests, which are national and international, geopolitical, geoeconomic? And from your perspective, how do we commence and command this unleashing which is the objective of today's discussion. Thank you. That's a very uh, broad canvas you've described. And I would say that the short answer to how does India unleash its soft power is in the following uh, superstructure. And that is allow the width and the weight of Indian experience to be translated into products, stroke experiences, stroke uh, products and experiences, let's start with that, which the world will find exciting to interact with. So there are many elements to this. One, the world has to find it exciting. It cannot be some pedantic uh, repetition of uh, something of India's greatness or anything. By all means, it should draw on India's culture and its history, but it should project forward. It should look at the generation that is today consuming this power. This generation, as I see it, the millennial generation, is not overawed by you know, the weight of history and tradition. It wants something which it relates to, and I think Advaita mentioned um, what the Koreans have done with their music. It has no connection, no remote relation to what traditional Korea stands for. It's modern, it's inventive, it's innovative, it has a width of appeal and it is willing to go kapow into the future. And it then engages people and suddenly 
Korea owns that space. If you continually try and occupy space which the Aryans invaded or the Dravidians had or, you know, some, I'm not saying abandon it, but you can't constantly harp on only that because the world has moved on. And I would say, as an opening statement, just to start the debate going, I would say, create something, be, shall I say, innovative, go to the very edge of what your experience is, and then do something which makes people sit up, millennials sit up and say, hey, I want a slice of this, or I want to be part of this, or I want to experience it. So, whether it is tourism, whether it is food, whether it's fashion, don't necessarily go back to what is called raw basics and say, oh, we have to do things which are in keeping with what you know, uh, India stands for. Go, go further out, create the new India. And that's what I think would be the root of software. No, wonderful. I think uh, the catchphrases, which uh, 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 thanks for setting the discussion here. The catchphrases are futuristic, millennial, and uh, packaging it in a product style that you can uh, sell it in some experience, those who are interacting with it. And I think that's a wonderful uh, moment for Shantanu and Nikhil to enter into this conversation because I guess that's precisely what they have done, reaching those frontiers, packaging it, and uh, making it what the millennials appreciate and understand. So without further ado, let me quickly get into you and how do you look at it? No, absolutely. I think uh, Dilip said the said the right uh, message by saying we got to look at the millennials. I think that's where the new India is heading. And I think we've had a awakening uh, last maybe a couple of years ago where we've always been the non-conformists in fashion. You know, so we've almost sort of tried to break the stereotypical notions of perceiving fashion to be just overtly tradition traditional. Uh, you know, India uh, has always been known as, as a fashion language to be a landscape full of colors, textures, embroideries, handloom. Uh, but we sort of kept that flavor going, but we sort of almost, if that was the trend, then we sounded as ourselves to be the anti-trend. So that is one side of India. The other side of India is modernity, where less is more, where the India narrative suddenly became a part of our DNA. And in the last two years, we've just understood fashion to be a storytelling narrative of not just fashion being perceived on the run runway, but fortitude as well. I think we've had, uh, just recently, we showcased um, a collection called The Regiment, which was inspired by the Indian Armed Forces and the virtues of the Indian Armed Forces. And what that led us to do was that we sort of looked at the virtues of pride, discipline, unity, and we try to bring in the gender equality feel factor, which is such an important aspect uh, that India sh is broadly not known for. And I think that was one of the relevant issues. Before that, um, we've also sort of embarked on this whole journey of bringing a sense of femininity in even in menswear, where we introduced this new language of drape, uh, which an Indian man was never accustomed to. So he was uh, pretty much... Uh, overshadowed by the traditions. Um, so it was almost like 
giving a communication tool to break that shackle and say, you know what, let me come out free on this. And what that did was that, that made the, the brides, the grooms and the families come together because the moment uh, we saw a little bit of femininity in, uh, in a masculine man, there was also a touch of masculinity that the woman wanted and wanted to feel proud. And that's where nostalgia stepped in. We went back to the pre-independence era, looked at the pride of India when we won uh, and we got independent and using those parameters and, and have a good look, feel, uh, vibe to it uh, with that whole Nehru color, Nehru color love and just modernizing the whole uh, landscape of fashion. And I think that's where we are going to be heading. Uh, this journey uh, has started two years, three years ago, I would say. Prior to that, also, we were breaking stereotypes, but I think now India has become uh, almost like a very strong inspiration for us. No, wonderful. That's a great idea. And I think here I would uh, request uh, Nikhil to get into the conversation because uh, one of the intriguing things that I understand from the world of fashion and what you both have done is that you have also explored the, uh, the non-traditional India which is beyond the metros. Uh, and uh, when we talk about unleashing of the soft power and its motives, you have also uh, sort of derived and drawn upon the motives which are beyond the metros and the capital. And uh, that's pretty evident, the way you have gone uh, picking up motives from unexpected uh, you know, terrains and charters. You talk about the regiment, you talk about uh, asexual uh, cuts, silhouettes, which are both apl applicable, and the touching the universe of the millennials. Now, here I would like to request if uh, Nikhil could come into conversation and give us a feel of uh, how this metro and non-metro, the suburban India, the tier two, tier three India, and the youth, which is the metropolitan youth, and the other India, and what is the connect between this unleashing, unleashing of the soft power globally and within? जहाँ तक कि मेरा सवाल मेरे को जो लगता है भारत में जिस तरीके का एक मूवमेंट देख रहे हैं पिछले छह साल के अंदर फैशन के अंदर अगर आप देखें अगर आप म्यूजिक में भी देखेंगे तो म्यूजिक में भी इस तरीके के टोन्स हैं कि साउथ से लेके नॉर्थ तक हर इंसान वेस्ट से लेके ईस्ट तक हर इंसान हर तरीके से हो रहा है। फैशन के अंदर भी लोग एक दूसरे को समझने की कोशिश करते थे, अब ज़्यादा समझ रहे हैं। और जो एक्सपोर्ट की आप बात कर रहे हैं, वो मेरे हिसाब से इंडिया में ऑलरेडी एक्सपोर्ट शुरू हो चुका है विदिन इंडिया। और ये जो हमारा अद्भुत देश है, इसके अंदर इतनी कमाल की जगह है कि ये कई देशों की तरह एक देश बना हुआ है जिसके अंदर एक्सपोर्ट शुरू हो चुका है मिलेनियल्स जहाँ तक का सवाल है छोटे शहरों से निकल के बड़े शहरों में आ रहे हैं और बड़े शहर के लोग अब छोटे शहरों में जाना पसंद कर रहे हैं और जहाँ से भी लोग जा रहे हो या आ रहे हैं अपना कुछ लेके उस जगह में पहुँच रहे हैं सो अगर ट्राइब्स हैं राजस्थान के वेदर दे आर कमिंग फ्राम द थार डेजर्ट दे आर गेटिंग देयर ब्रोचेज देर ट्राइबल ज्वेलरी वो बड़े सिटीज़ में आके वो अपने नथ पहन लेते हैं मर्द इयरिंग्स पहनते हैं वो एक ट्रेंड बन रहा है लोग पसंद कर रहे हैं आमिर खान अब नथ पहन के घूम रहे हैं तो ये एक्सपोर्ट है स्टार्टेड विद इन इंडिया दिस अ ब्यूटीफुल केयर्स ऑफ डिज़ाइन दैट्स गोइंग ऑन एंड इट्स अ ग्रेट मोमेंट फॉर अस मुझे लगता है कि अगले कुछ सालों के अंदर देश एक हो जाएगा 
डिज़ाइन के प्रस्पेक्टिव से बहुत खूब बहुत अच्छा आपने कहा कि किस तरह से जो कैचमेंट है हमारे सॉफ्ट पावर के मोटिव्स का और उसकी अपनी लैंग्वेज है आई थिंक आई डिड हियर यू से कि नॉर्थ से साउथ सारे म्यूजिकल नोट हर कोई समझता है और म्यूज़िक क्रिएटिविटी और फैशन की भाषा में डिस्टेंस नहीं है द मोमेंट यू प्रेजेंटेड वो सबको समझ में आती है और इसमें हमारे अर्बन एंड नॉन अर्बन एंड बिग सिटीज़ एंड स्मॉल सिटीज़ उसका डिस्टेंस भी कहीं ब्रीच हुआ है और शायद उसमें हमारी जो डिजिटल इंफॉर्मेशन एज है उसका भी एक अपना रोल रहा है और ब्यूटीफुली एक्सपैंडिंग दिस कॉन्वर्सेशन ऑफ मोटिव्स एंड सॉफ्ट पावर कैचमेंट जो आपने कहा uh, उसी की थीम पे मैं आगे बढ़ता हूँ और हरी पे आता हूँ बिकॉज हरी का कैचमेंट इज इवन फॉर द वास्टर एज आई अंडरस्टैंड दैट यू लुक एट इट फ्राम द सिविलाइजेशनल एंड इंडिक परस्पेक्टिव now from these alphabets it's a world festival so we are talking about the alphabets so communication alphabets then we moved on to the narrative of the fashion and creativity aap isko kis vantage se jo aap indic civilizational cultural motive ke perspective se aap isko kahan dekhte hain aur aapko kahan lagta hai ki iski unleashing mein there are areas where further work can be how to take it forward thank you <coughs> Uh, we we have set up a foundation called creative india academy the specific purpose of this is to make to be an advocacy platform to make india a global soft uh, soft power in a defined period of time so trying to make a business plan that by 2030 we can clearly with tangible and uh, uh, measurable parameters we can say yes india has become a global soft power that's the basic purpose of it now how do we do that so what we have done is we have broken up soft power into 12 verticals the first is uh, spirituality then yoga ayurveda design which could include fashion graphic design industrial design it could include subset furniture um cuisine visual arts performing arts music literature films tourism so these verticals if you actually make a business plan of 25 top cities in the world based on gdp based on the presence of uh, indian diaspora then we look at how can we see in each neighborhood how many yoga studios are there how many yoga studios can be there right how many restaurants are there in adelaide which serve a molecular gastronomy experience which he would talk about or which would uh, a, a vegetarian restaurant so if you actually break up into city wise and see what's the impact of a culture across these 12 verticals you can actually and map what is the presence of the indian diaspora there then you can have a fairly uh, a matrix of what is the potential that is there once you make this uh, actually this this came about because in 2000 when we set up a incubator uh, 99 mckinsey made a business plan for nascom to make india soft uh, software uh, global power and to say that we can reach 50 billion dollars by uh, 
you know, in 10 years' time. So if we have a business plan like that and break it down into these 12 verticals across the 50 cities and see what's the presence today and what's the market demand in all these cities, then we have a, a sort of a war room, a control room kind of a perspective saying that, hey, in Perth, there are 10 restaurants. Maybe there's a potential for five more. How do we uh, see that? Right? So you can actually uh, plan everything. The, the, the one important thing is that we have to look at culture from an economics point of view. Culture is good. Civilization is good. But the moment you change your perspective and say, what's the economics of this culture? Then your, your, your perspective changes. How do I make them a global chain? How do I ensure that they're in every uh, fashion festival? What is the uh, intervention that they need is what I should look at. What's the art galleries that are there? What's the binales that are there? How do I ensure that every, in every binale, there's an art gallery uh, from India or a collection of art galleries there? So these are the interventions. So far, the soft power that has happened, or what we have achieved today, is only because of a pull. The time has now come for a push strategy, wherein we now do this kind of a business plan, look at how do we push and have a defined period and say, by 2030, I will be a soft power. That's the, that's the way to look at it. So now what are the three, four things that we are trying to do? Is one is we are trying to set up a software fund, an angel fund, which will invest if he comes up with a restaurant saying that, okay, Washington, there's a need for a, a modernist cuisine restaurant. There's a potential there. New York, Manish has done very well. Indian accent has done very well, in, and he's opening in London. Now, maybe in San Francisco, there's an opportunity for a, a restaurant there. Now, how do we fund that, right? So that's the thing where this angel funding a, a, a software fund would try to look at these kind of ventures. The other thing is that most of these businesses are small-scale businesses. They're not scaled. How do we get scale? Unless you have scale, the investors won't come. So, for example, Kazana. You have Kazana in 51 Buckingham Gate, and you have Kazana here in Taj. But why can't Kazana be a global chain, right? Now, that's not happening. If you go to Palo Alto, you can see a Tibetan handicraft uh, uh, shop on the road, but you don't see an uh, Indian handicraft shop. Now, how do you create a global chain of handicraft and how can I incentivize Kazana to say, now let me open 10 Kazanas all over the world? What's the kind of funding required? This government has announced a, a sovereign fund in the first budget of 10,000 crores. I don't know what has happened to it, but that's one of the incentives, in, in, interventions that they can do. The other intervention is in terms of, for example, Mudra Bank. Mudra Bank is a refinancing bank. The perspective of Mudra Bank right now is looking at entrepreneurs in India. But if you start looking at entrepreneurs outside of India, Indians outside of India, then look at, I, 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 I'm, I live in Singapore, if, I, if, if, if we tie up with DBS Bank and say any entrepreneur in Singapore who wants to set up a business, whether it's a restaurant or whether it's a yoga studio or whether it's a handicraft shop, we will refinance you, you go ahead and give it, right? It's a very simple refinancing technique. I can tie up with Citibank. So automatically the perspective is that I am now looking at financing Indians outside of India. 
as a refinancing mechanism and encouraging them to set up the outlets, the distribution outlets that he can franchise to, and then uh, you're encouraging entrepreneurship. So the perspective is economics. That's the perspective. Oh, no, wonderful. I think uh, there is a <clears throat> beautiful convergence that emerging now. Uh, we started with the leap who says that let's package it into experiences. And uh, Shantanu and Nicholas spoke about how they've gone about picking up the motives. And I hear you that uh, you are emphasizing on creating a business plan. You are talking about the economics of it. And you are also saying that we have space for proactive interventions. What you have said that so far what has ever happened uh, is more of the pull factor of it. Uh, briefly, I would like to come into the conversation here once again because there's some uh, interesting <clears throat> thoughts that, that have been generated. You know, uh, what we have done with yoga, like IT was known, even the cuisine to a great extent was known, and uh, 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 Ayurveda also to an extent was. But you know, what has happened on the yoga front, the unraveling of it in two years and three years' time, it's, it's mind-boggling and no cost. Now, this kind of a campaign, <clears throat> which is not purely economic and commercial, and it has the potential of the other, the studios that you're talking about. How do you see these cross connections being made? That on the one hand, we bring the brand of yoga, Ayurveda, Indians' minds of IT, that you know we are very intelligent people. People see us that way. And that perception, a brand perception, a perception of brand, and how do we connect the economics and the commercial of it? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, we looked at uh, one uh, yoga wear company in, out of Bangalore for investment. For, just to give you an example, how we've lost this economics, we don't think about economics. Now, uh, there's a company called Lululemon, if based out of Vancouver. It was set up, it started in a yoga studio. And the whole, the business plan of that was yoga wear. Uh, and, and today, they make $269 million profit. Last year, they made $269 It's a multi-billion dollar company. So we just lost it out. We just lost that. So now... Even after this yoga push in the last three years, we have to think what are the things within the value chain of yoga that we can look at. Yoga wear, yoga mats is obvious, right? What about yoga schools? Now you can set up four yoga schools, certify it. And in, if you go to any of the Far East uh, resorts, everywhere you can, uh, they all have uh, Ayurveda and yoga. We should ha employ our people there. We should send trained, certified people from India to all the, uh, whether it's the resorts in Bali or any of these places. So you think of services. Services. services and products, as he was talking about, and experiences. Experiences should come from here. We don't have a, a yoga circuit here. If, if I want to go on a yoga retreat, if you do a, a Google of yoga retreats, it's all in Bali and in, in the Far East, in Kosamui and these kind of places. We're not even there. So. If we want to do a, a, a yoga, I mean, people want to, people come to Mysore. I mean, you go to Mysore, there are, uh, you know, thousands of people living in, uh, as paid guests, uh, learning from uh, the Mysore uh, school. Or if you go to Pune. So we have not captured that, that whole, so when we think of, okay, now this is yoga day, has happened three years. Now, what is the value chain on services and in products that we can capture? That's what we need to think. So moving to the next logical step of it, uh, I'll bring you Manish into conversation here. I mean, uh, of course, you have views about it, but uh, uh, the, the domain that you are in, the cuisine and Indian cuisine, I mean, do you get a sense that there we are ahead of the curve or behind the curve? Or is it pull still there or is it push which has started working on it? Where are we on that? You know, India is such a huge country 
and we have such a rich culture of uh, culinary heritage that to say that we are ahead of the curve, uh, I don't think we're going to get there anywhere soon. I think what's happening right now and the reason why we uh, founded the South Asian Association for Gastronomy is to create a platform where uh, we get all the South Asian nations together and there is a common thread which has been running in this entire region. If you go back to the days of Ashoka the Great, his empire extended all the way, obviously, from the current India, Pakistan, Bangladesh to Afghanistan. And then he sent his uh, children down to Sri Lanka for propagating Buddhism. So it's been there for 2,000 years. And there has been an exchange of not just thoughts, but also cuisines. You know, there's been, and so that added further to the richness of uh, you know, ethnic Indian cuisines. Secondly, today, if you look at anyone's table, Anywhere in the world, there are only two condiments always found, salt and pepper. Pepper came from India. That's what, you know, the biggest power has been. We've given the most important condiment in the world. People might think red chilies. Red chilies came to India only 400 years ago. So pepper itself, you know, I mean, uh, it's there in the history records that there was a war in Rome around the second century AD. And the peace was brokered with sacks of pepper. So it was also used as a commodity, you know. So coming back, there's such a huge richness of our culinary heritage. Our, our uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at our biggest, most famous export, Kama Sutra, it, it lists down foods which are meant as aphrodisiacs, you know. And so stemming from that and seeing the commonality in this entire South Asian region, we felt there was a gap which existed where people did not have an exchange of ideas A, within the country about topics beyond commerce connected with cuisines. And secondly, what is the opinion of our brothers and sisters in our neighboring countries? And there is this need in millennials, you know, they keep hearing, for example, I mean, two uh, sessions ago, uh, the lady from Bahari, uh, Miss Bahari, she spoke about doing a book on partition. And there is this, especially in Delhi, you know, there is this huge interest about knowing of cuisines of Pakistan. And the millennials today don't just want repackaged Indian food in terms of progressive Indian or in terms of molecular Indian gastronomy. They also want to know what is, it, what is happening in the neighboring countries. What is their food? Where is it going? So there is a huge market over there. And uh, uh, I'll have you know that I traveled personally to Pakistan uh, three years ago when situation was quite all right. And uh, as everybody has heard many times, the reception in Pakistan was incredibly warm. The people-to-people -people contact is incredible. You know, Whatever they say about the reception we Indians receive in Pakistan is absolutely true. They are very, very warm and friendly to us. There is an equal burning desire in that country and their millennials, millennials to meet with our millennials and have an exchange, and especially when it comes to food, Especially when it comes to food, you know, it's, a, it's all about the five senses. It's a sensory experience. So the way we look at it, we are not going to get ahead of the learning curve very soon. But there are tremendous opportunities. There is a tremendous interest. Uh, if we have uh, chefs like Atul Kocher, uh, who have brought molecular Indian gastronomy to the fore, and then Manish Merotra, and there are a lot of them now who've done fabulously well for themselves. There are, there are chefs in Pakistan as well, there are chefs in Bangladesh as well, who are saying, hey, listen, let's reinvent 
ourselves. I mean, they want to take the heaviness out of their cuisines, use the traditional spices, and reinvent the entire cuisine. So there is a huge pull, there is a huge push, and uh, I mean, the market is just waiting to explode, I would think. No, I mean, uh, uh, great for that pepper bit of it, which is uh, very instructive for us to, to learn about it, that, and also the underlying notion in your, in your, in your thoughts that uh, how these connects run far deeper and they Absolutely, go, go yes. back. And uh, the, the panel that we have is today is, is, is perhaps uh, only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the, the untapped potential, Absolutely. so to say, uh, the sense that I get is huge. I think we do have uh, a demand on time. But I would uh, like to come back to Dilip on this conversation. But Dilip, uh, <coughs> we, we have uh, looked at uh, specific sectoral things here. We heard about, I think, Hari brought in that uh, a, a broad spectrum perspective of it. Uh, would you have a concluding thought in it? I think taking off from what Hari said and the subject of food and fashion, um, you know, in creating a business plan for India's soft power, we need to understand what are the low-hanging fruit. We need to take quick advantage to it for of it because, as we know, this is a government which is willing to back those ideas, whether it's mudra, whether it's other financing schemes, the India Sovereign Fund, etc. The first thing is money. The second thing is having the creative people break barriers, not worry about rules and do it. But the third is, you know, you have to experiment a lot and you need to fling a few ideas around and see what actually gets off take. You know, where, where India, basically I think, we are not as a people great risk takers. And in culture, we should take the risk, take the leap and see whether we can do it. And established players are unlikely to do that. Millennial entrepreneurs are possibly going to do it. That's my, that's my take. Well, friends, uh, I guess the conversation was just warming up. And it was a wonderful evening. And uh, with Manish, I think the food also is the right time. But I guess there's always a time to say that uh, we will have more conversation in next sessions. Uh, our panelists are here. But the time is of supreme importance. So let me say a great thanks to a wonderful panel here and uh, hope and wish that this conversation continues. I do not think that we have time for Q&As, but uh, we are around and we can have this conversation after this. So let me thank our wonderful panelists once again. Thank you so very much for coming and joining us this evening. Thank you.